0: Welcome to the Total Football Analysis podcast. My name is David Seymour. I'm delighted to be joined by Scott Martin today. Scott Martin is a senior analyst at Total Football Analysis, and he has just written the book, Revitalizing Real Madrid, the tactics and stats behind Zinedine Zidane's success. Um, Scott's a good friend of mine. So when this book came out, uh, I messaged him and said, hey, let's jump on a podcast because I haven't actually done a podcast in a while, so it seemed like as good an excuse as any. Uh, Scott, how are you doing? Doing well, David. How about you? Yeah, really good, thank you. So, Scott, you're uh, located in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, how are things going over there? Are you coaching at the moment?
1: Yeah, so we've got a weird season over here. Uh, we've had to yeah, kind of work out our agreement with the, uh, the high school clubs. And um, right now, the high school season is in play. So the older club teams, the guys and the girls, we're off for now, but Girls State Cup at the end of the month, and then boys fully kick off in mid-March. That's exciting. So
0: obviously, Charlotte's probably one of the more exciting sort of uh, soccer locations in the States right now, with obviously the MLS team uh, moving, or moving, I guess, uh, just being allocated. Yeah, so expansion franchise, yeah. That's right. Yes. So what's what's the situation there and how has that impacted you as a coach of a, of a club already based in Charlotte?
1: You know, it's just created more buzz around the soccer community. So, you know, it's North Carolina in particular, uh, I think mostly because of the great weather we have here and the presence of UNC Chapel Hill and uh, another strong soccer program at Duke. You know, it, this really is a soccer state. We, you know, we have seen, um, Loads of interest generated by the Charlotte FC arrival. We've had, uh, you know, for my club in particular, uh, Charlotte Soccer Academy, we've had Patrick Daca, our former technical director, join the academy staff at Charlotte FC. So, you know, they've just done a really good job uh, coming into the community, building up some interest, and then just connecting with some of the more prominent soccer uh, personalities here. So, yeah, a lot of buzz ahead of the the expansion or the inaugural season next when, year in 2022. 2022 is their first season? 2022, yeah. They pushed it back a year because of COVID.
0: Okay. And but they've already announced a few signings, right?
1: Yeah, they've got a few players. So Sergio Ruiz is on loan at Las Palmas. They've got uh, Riley McGree, who's at Birmingham, uh, Birmingham City. Okay. And then they've, they've also just made uh, one more signing Brant Bronico, formerly of the Chicago Fire. I I would assume he's going back on loan in the MLS just to prepare for next season.
0: Interesting. So I know that the inspiration behind your book was obviously that you were a mad Real Madrid fan. Um, How does that happen for a guy in Charlotte? How did you fall in love with Real Madrid?
1: You know, it really ties back to my heritage. Uh, All four of my grandparents came to the United States from Portuguese islands, and my paternal grandfather comes from the island of Madeira, the uh, hometown of Cristiano Ronaldo, Funchal. So, you know, there's growing up in a Portuguese community in California, um, you know, I just always had this love of Portuguese soccer. That's my background in soccer. You know, I'm not so much an American coach. My style is very much Portuguese. Almost all of my port- uh, coaches growing up were Portuguese as well, so that's that is the style of play that I implement as a coach. That's how I view the game as an analyst, and you know, just because of the heritage, I've grown up watching Portuguese superstars make their way outside of the domestic league and make their mark in Europe. And there's no better club for a Portuguese superstar than Real Madrid. You now we have. Luis Figo's infamous move from Barcelona to Real Madrid uh, that was followed up by, you know, the, the moves of Ricardo Carvalho, Cristiano Ronaldo, Pepe, Fabio Contrao. So it's, it's really become a home for Portuguese players, you know, even if at the moment Barcelona does outnumber us in that category. But, yeah, there is that connection. And, you know, I think just given my, my Madeira roots, you know, I've always been a, a huge fan of Cristiano Ronaldo, tracked him throughout his life. So, you know, when he made the move to Real Madrid, uh, really just cemented what was already there, you know, given the, the Figu move.
0: Interesting. That's really interesting. So, I mean, give us, I guess, give us a bit of a, a summary or, of the book. That would be really useful. Tell us, tell us uh, if you pick up a, a copy of Revitalizing Real Madrid, what, what are you going to read about?
1: Yeah, so I think when you pick up a copy of Revitalizing Real Madrid, you're gonna get a nice blend of you know, the, the tactical ideas that led to the club capturing their thirty-fourth La Liga title and the data underlying the performances. And with the data aside, you know, I wanted to, to really capture what the team had been in the past, why there was that that fall from grace in two thousand eighteen nineteen. And then the return under Zidane, and so looking at the data, I, you know, I wanted to see how that contributed to the the story, to the the renewal under Zidane. And from that data analysis perspective, there there were a lot of insights that came into play, and really, you know, just they just added another element to the book, you know, another layer that I could look at and help me kind of see through the the fog of a you know, thirty-eight game season. And you know, start to see what it was that was underlying the success of the club.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I picked up a copy and, and I've read it, and I really enjoyed it. And I think that that was one thing that really stood out to me was the use of data analysis. I know that um, Satish Prasad, who has teamed up with you to do some of the images here, did a superb job of legend. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, of just really clearly illustrating some of the points that. You are making, and I found that really useful. Um, with, with that in mind, with the use of, I mean, you know, we look, this book looks at the tactics, it looks at the data, but it also gives that overall story. Who, who would you say this book is sort of aimed at? What's the, the market you feel is going to pick this up and really benefit from it?
1: Well, I think it's for the, yeah, I guess I would say that just your everyday total football analysis reader. You know, if you love tactics, you love data analysis you'd like to see how the two integrate, this book is for you. So, you know, it's, it's just got a nice balance of the tactical boards that, you know, I really made sure I not only went into detail with, you know, little things like player names, but also dates, opponents, the the scoreline at the moment that I captured, uh, the the tactical image, and also the minute of the game. So if you do want to... Uh, you know, maybe jump on YouTube or or another website, take a look at the, the match footage, you'd really see exactly what I'm getting at with these specific tactics boards. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to go beyond that too. I, I wanted to add something else. And that's where, you know, little things like Satish's radars, uh, beautiful in the way they, they came out. He also created p- uh, heat maps for me as well. And, uh, you know, a few pass maps. So you really do get a sense... Of you know the the overall balance between the two sides of the games, you know the, the more analytical data approach, but also get a a deep look at Zidane's tactics, you know the the innovative side of coaching that really led to the title.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll come to Zidane's tactics momentarily. The book the book didn't exactly like pick up where. the the previous season had left off. So obviously this this book was looking at last season, 2019-20, to but it it gave some insight as well into what had happened before with Zinedine Zidane uh, and Cristiano Ronaldo leaving and the impact that had on Real Madrid. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a, a big follower of La Liga. So it was really interesting for me as an outsider to read about it. And there were a lot of things that I actually wasn't aware of. I wonder if you just want to sort of give us sort of overview as to as to really what happened when those two key individuals left.
1: Yeah. You know, when you look at the, the real Madrid teams from those Cristiano Ronaldo and Zidane years, you do get the sense that the team was fairly reliant on Cristiano Ronaldo in the attacking third. I mean, it's, it's tough to take away uh, 46 goal contributions in one league season and, uh, you know, not find a suitable replacement. But, yeah, when you look at uh, that connection between Zidane and Ronaldo, you do get the sense that once Zidane got Real Madrid into the attacking third, he really just let their creative freedom and, you know, their qualitative superiority take over. And that's where, you know, with, when you have the luxury of a player like Cristiano Ronaldo, you don't have to be quite as precise with your entries into the box. Because the guy's reading of play, his his reading of the, the entry balls, is so much faster than anyone else's. Um, and he's got the freakish athleticism to meet any deliveries. So you do get the sense that in the attacking third, there was some dependence. And you know, in terms of attacking soccer at, or football at Real Madrid, there was Cristiano Ronaldo and support players. Uh, and granted, brilliant support players at that, you know, Karim Benzema, was not quite at the level that he's playing at right now, but uh, still a brilliant second uh, scoring option. And you had Bale jumping in, and, and that's, that's something we'll touch upon in a moment, um, that the way that Gareth Bale interacted with Benzema and Ronaldo. Um, but yeah, you do get the sense that the team was very heavily linked to Cristiano Ronaldo's success. When you look at the heat map in the first chapter of the book, you know it, it really lights up right around the penalty spot. And that's something later on we'll, we'll see that uh, Benzema and his support forwards, they haven't really given Real Madrid um, after Ronaldo's departure. So, but yeah, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, Zinedine Zidane, um, the two elites working together, they really created that that attacking brand that was so successful at the club and and produced three consecutive champions league titles uh first time it's been done in the modern era
0: why why was uh lopatigi or Lopet- have to how do i say it lopatigi lopatigi there you go fantastic there. so lopatigi came in he was obviously the spanish coach and i, I remember at the time being aware of sort of the mess that occurred when he announced that he was going to be the, well, I don't think he announced I think it was leaked that he was going to be the real Madrid coach or whatever. So he was sacked as a Spanish coach just before the world cup. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, days before their opening game against Portugal.
0: Yeah. And he obviously went over to real Madrid and he was a, I mean, a very highly rated coach and, and listen, he, he's clearly proven since then that he is a top coach.
1: What, what went wrong there though? I think you have to look at two issues in particular. The first and I I hate to say this, but I, I think it is tied to the catastrophic situation, you know, that that surrounded his entry at the club. It's that the way he was disgracefully dismissed from Spain, you know, days before the World Cup opener, he there, there was no room for failure. And especially following in the, the footsteps of a legend, you know, someone who had accomplished so much in Zidane, um, the pressure was already so incredibly high. I don't think he could have succeeded if he had simply stuck with uh, what Zidane had done. But it, I think you know, the, the second part, of it, he also wanted to implement his philosophy, his style of play. He wanted uh, a higher tempo in the attacking tactics. Um, he is a coach that really enjoys crossing the ball. And, you know, we saw that uh, he continued to force the ball into the box through crosses during his time at Real Madrid, but it didn't really fit with the pieces that he had, especially when you take Ronaldo out of the equation and that kind of leads to the second question, which is, I don't think he really looked at the personnel in the proper depth and analyzed what their strengths were and was really aware of their weaknesses and, you know, in terms of the attacking tactics, they moved the ball well. Uh, you know, there's no denying that. It's, it was the, the final ball, you know, that, that assault on goal that was missing. But the bigger issue was, was actually their defense. Uh, they were so expansive in the attack, so open, that they just got crushed defensively. I mean, I, I remember watching the games that season, and any time they lost the ball, you know, right at that, that point of the, the middle third and the attacking third, it's like, you know, here comes a counterattack. <laughs> Marcelo's up the pitch. He's, he's not recovering. Cruz is out of position. So, you know, first ball was almost instantly right in front of Ramos. Mm. The opponents could draw Ramos into midfield, and then they could play, you know, a simple one-two around him. And now they were 2v1 with Varane. And, you know, at that point, there was just that, that desperation for Real Madrid and for the fans that if Varane doesn't get a touch here, it's the ball's ending up in the back of the net. And that's exactly what happened. They were so open, so expansive because Lopetegui wanted to emphasize the attacking tactics without really the proper regard for the defensive vulnerabilities in the team. And so, you know, they were eaten alive and ultimately that was his undoing. You know, he couldn't fix the, the defensive side of the game.
0: And then obviously, um, Santiago Solari came in as well after uh, Lopetegui and Solari, ex-Padreau player. And I mean, how would you assess his time at the club?
1: Yeah, so one of the things he did that I actually really enjoyed was that he, he dropped down their possession rate I want to say it was right about 7%. So, you know, Lopatigi had the team possessing at about 65%, maybe a little higher. And Solari bumped it down to just under 60. So, you know, in a way, he was encouraging opponents to have a little bit more of the game to to come out of that low block and to actually engage. And that, that did help Real Madrid. Um, match was a little bit more open. They could afford to be a little bit more direct at times, knowing that the space was available. So that that did help on the attacking side of the game. And and really, with them conceding a little less possession, being a little less expansive, we did see that the defensive side of the game improved a little bit as well. So, you know, he did at times, I think, get them back on the right track. But his downfall was that just horrendous week, where you know he saw the the Copa del Rey exit against Barcelona, the Champions League loss against Ajax, and then another La Liga loss against Barcelona. So just one disaster after another really confirmed that Real Madrid would end the season without a trophy, and yeah, that was I, his undoing. I think I think you in the book uh, I think you stated it, it was probably the worst
0: week in the club's history, I think, which is, is quite something. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That is quite a series of losses to have. And then, so this was in the uh, 2018-19 season, correct? And yes. And then um, this sort of return was Zidane. So obviously, you know, Zidane had had an incredibly prosperous time beforehand with Real Madrid. I mean, we'd seen a dominance in the Champions League that we, we may not ever see another team have. Um, it was quite something, but I think as an outsider, I if you'd if you'd asked me is Zidane a sort of tactician or whatever, I, I'll be honest with you, I, pro- I probably wouldn't have said that. I said he's probably a very good man manager, and, and he did a great job of harnessing the the talent that Real Madrid had. But I was really interested in the the first really two tactical chapters that you have in your book, um, one on rest defense and one on man marking. So these were kind of two tactical differences that we saw as soon as Zidane returned. I wonder wonder if you want to sort of talk about those.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about rest defense, we're talking about a team's shape as they're attacking. So, you know, if they turn over the ball, are they prepared to close down space quickly, uh, maybe deny access to the central channel and keep the opponent from, from having a successful counterattack. So that's really where Zidane got to work. And, you know, I think to his credit, he identified that left side of the pitch, uh, especially in the left half space as an area that needed, uh, needed solving right away. So, you know, in previous years, we, we had seen Cruz and Muldrich play higher at the pitch, you know, it was a point down four, three, three midfield. Um, so Casemiro was alone at the base of the midfield and he was asked to cover the full width of the pitch, which, you know, I, I, don't know, I, I played a uh, defensive mid as, as a kid. Um, that's, that's a big ask for any player. So, you know, especially for someone like Casemiro, who's maybe not quite the, the Conte, um, type of player who just seems to cover the entire width, uh, in an instant, he really did, did need a little bit of help. And the simple fix, which I, I don't know why it took so long to identify, but the simple fix was just dropping crews deeper in the midfield. So he, you know, already enjoyed dropping in in the midfield uh, during the build-up to to use his press resistance to secure the first phase of the attack, progress into the middle third, and then help the the team distribute from there. But one thing we saw in previous years is that. Once he made that initial distribution, maybe into the, the wings, he would then push further up the field, uh, just outside of the box, and try to, to act like more of an eight ten hybrid. But Zidane pulled him back. Uh, you know, Actually, just in this January 2021 TFA magazine, I wrote about Cruz as a regista. That's essentially the role that Tony Cruz took on. But Zidane dropping him you know, really next to Casemiro, uh, so almost giving it more of a 4 formation, he was able to first utilize Tony Cruz's range in the attack. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but the biggest thing was that he now had someone to offer a presence in the left half space. So now that, that area of the pitch that opponents really targeted as a means of drawing Ramos out, that was now secured. And, you know, you don't need a brilliant defender uh, to fill that role. Cruz is not an exceptional defender at all. <laughs> you know, he's said many times, he's not Casemiro. But what he does do is he offers a presence. And at times, that's all you need. You just need someone to be there to prevent those passes into space. And so, Tony Cruz gave Real Madrid that and, you know, in a sense, there was a midfield square at the back. And, between Cruz, Casemiro, Ramos, and Varane, they were not only able to take away the central channel, um, but they could easily track uh, passes into the half spaces, which then forced opponents to target the wings. And if you're a team like Real Madrid, if you can push someone out to the wings and then just simply delay their attack while they're you know a little bit further from goal, you give your your players that you know especially. Uh, some of the hard-working players I have at midfield and forward, a little bit of time to recover. You know, give Vinicius Jr., Danny Carvajal, Ferlan Mendy a chance to recover, buy them an extra few seconds, and they'll get back in their shape. And that's effectively what Zidane did. And so that rest defense, that, that was really the key, to me, to their entire season. But delaying the opponent's attack, he gave his guys a chance to get set.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think we'll jump on to... Kroos a little bit more in a second as well. Um, And then you spoke about the sort of return of like a a man marking system. Could could you highlight what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think this is very closely tied to the team's counter-pressing. Zidane, I think in terms of the the actual numbers themselves, the passes per defensive action, they were actually... They actually, uh, were a little bit lower than they had been the previous season, you know, 2029 slash 20, it was 9.93. The previous year it was 9.28. So a little bit lesser intensity in the counter press, but the objectives were a little bit different. The previous season, the objective was just simply to win the ball back, you know, try to get possession back within, you know, the six seconds. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us have coached the six second rule in the counter press. And that really seemed to be the emphasis with Lopetegui and Solari. However, with this Real Madrid team, it was really a twofold distinction that set up the man-marking high press. So, the first was in the counter press. The first objective was to prevent progression. So, by forcing the opponents to play backwards, you're effectively forcing them to play into your numbers, which could then spur another negative pass and another one. And so, you know, if that, first and foremost, was the objective, deny progression and try to play the negative pass. And, you know, second, if they could win it without, you know, it's really a numbers game. If they could win it without taking on a lot of risk, then yeah, uh, you know, a player like Casemiro, Ramos, Ferran, you know, these guys were exceptional defenders. They they could take that little bit of extra risk and uh, and win the ball back. But yeah, the objective here, force negative passes and force the center backs and goalkeepers to be the playmakers in the buildup. So as those negative passes happened, Real Madrid was able to uh, deny immediate, or space immediately near the ball, but then also find their, their mark. And so as that happened uh, and the negative passes were played, the opponents typically found themselves in a position where Real Madrid had everybody man-marked and and now their goalkeeper had absolutely no options. Every ball, any ball he could play was 50-50. And when you're sending the ball in the direction of uh, Ramos, Ferran, Casemiro, those odds are really, you know, 40-60 or even um, 35-65. So I think the deep distributions were a big part of it. And first, I mean... For opponents to be able to break out, they had to get into more expansive attacking shapes. Often, you know, we'd see them try to target the wings, try and get the ball to a wide forward or a wide midfielder. And what that did was Real Madrid effectively baited opponents to take up a larger shape, concede the middle, and then put them in a position where if they won the first or second ball, they now had a highly connected network in a dangerous part of the pitch. And so the entries into the box were actually far easier this season than they had been in the past. And so, you know, we look at this as a, a defensive tactic, but really the, the man marking high press was in service to the team's attacking tactics. You know, it was a very direct approach that I could, you know, have that, uh, that philosophy in mind, just get the ball, circulate it quickly, get to the box, get your shot off. Um, you know, much like we saw Liverpool with their successful Champions League victory. You know, what was it? Under eight seconds possession and under three passes for every goal scored. Same idea. And the man marking high press is how they established it.
0: So let's move on to talking about some of the key individuals that you highlighted in this book. And I think as with I guess any successful team, there's there's a strong spine. And um I think a good place to start would be with the goalkeeper. And you did a chapter on Thibaut Courtois and you spoke about Cato uh, Navas as well. So that was a really interesting goalkeeper situation they had there with, with those two sort of uh, fighting it out for that starting spot. And can can you say, sort of explain to us what, what happened there and, and, what changed Zidane made to that goalkeeper spot when he came back to the club?
1: Yeah, it was a little bit of a train wreck. Really, <laughs> if you want to look at a, a situation that really encapsulated 2018-19, goalkeeper situation was a, a, it's a pretty good place to start. So, you know, we, <laughs> we had Navas, uh, fan favorite, uh, beloved by the club, um, great teammate as well. And you know, I think arguably still one of, if not the top five goalkeepers in the world, you know, definitely top ten. And yet Real Madrid made the move to bring in Thibaut Courtois. So rather than letting Navas leave for another club, they allowed him to stay to fight for his position. And yeah, there was just always this tension. Um, you know, we we felt it as fans too. Um you know, there I think a lot of us were on Keller Navis's side. There there was a sense that there was an injustice that he was booted from the starting spot for Thibaut Courtois when Navis had really not done anything to to lose the spot. There was no justification for it. So there was an immediate sense of conflict and you could see that play out in the way the goalkeepers approach the game. You know, I, I think ultimately novice did a better job rising to the occasion and beating off the the challenge of Courtois. And yeah, I think that is in part because he was a fan favorite. But Zidane had a problem. You know, you, you can't have these two goalkeepers in the same club, you know, not for a second year, especially. And the club had invested in Thibaut Courtois. They spent a lot of money to get him there. He's on a, a high wage. So he had to be the guy. Uh, so yeah, send P- Navas to PSG like Courtois be the guy and immediately you see the dividends um, confidence really peaked you tell that that adaptation period and um, you know, where he was now asked to to play with his feet a little bit more he was much more comfortable in that phase of the game at Real Madrid you know in his second season which you know I don't think is something he really had to do at Chelsea so we saw improvements with his feet confidence started to rise and you know it, you get the book. I mean, check out the radar in Chapter 6. I mean, it, it's just really staggering how much his, imp- uh, his performance has improved from one year to the, the next. It was, it was basically ev- every category, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, and, and substantial. Mm. So, you know, there was a, a slight dip in save percentage, but he was also facing far fewer shots. And, uh, you know, I think when opponents did get shots off this past year, uh they tended to be of slightly higher quality. So yeah, I mean it's it, it really was staggering and I think his his return to form was really a catalyst for this team's success.
0: And then you move from Coutinho to looking at Buran and Ramos at the center back. And I think when you when you think of those two centre backs, you think of I mean that that is a, a partnership that's been able to grow over a long period of time. But I think individually as well those two are always in the conversa- conversation for two of the, the best centre-backs. I think if you talk top 10 again in the world, I think you'd probably still see both of those in in the top 10. Um, so tell us a little bit about their partnership under Zidane.
1: Yeah, so with this team, uh, you know, if you put these guys in the right situation, uh, you're not asking them to to step into midfield to, to effectively kill you know, six, seven opposition counter-attacks every game. You allow them to really play with, from within themselves to channel their strengths and, and to really make a positive influence in the match. So from a defensive perspective, you know, that, that those two players ahead of them, Casemiro Cruz, gave them the protection they needed that simply wasn't there the previous year. So, you know, we did see um, each of those players really put up better numbers uh, on the defensive side of the game. But to me, the biggest thing with Real Madrid, you do have to talk about the attacking side of the game, their uh, attacking contributions. And that's where we saw Varane and Ramos really make a a positive impact on the team's tactics, just with their press resistance and their ability to to uh, break the, the first line of pressure. So Ramos in particular, I mean, he and he and Tony Cruz are virtually um, replacement players. I, I mean, they're interchangeable players at the role. They both enjoy distributing from that left half space. Um, both excel when they can get outside of the opposition's press and use their range and accuracy to play over the defense. So, We did see more of that from Ramos. And, um, you know, we look at uh, his contributions per game. I mean, 6.16 long passes per game, 73% accuracy, which is wildly successful for a center back. So he did take on a more prominent role. Uh, We did see Real Madrid really funnel play. Uh, especially in the build up phases to that left hand side where they could take advantage of cruz and ramos 's relationship, but th- they really just looked more secure at the back and and comfort- comfortable and competent in playing out of that first uh, wave of opponent press so yeah it, I mean huge contributions from the two center backs this past year and you know, it's, it's a relationship that really suits both of them well. We're almost a little bit more aggressive, and really enjoy stepping up into midfield or, or even just taking a run into the box, whereas Varane is really just the perfect cover defender. Um, tall, fast, um, excellent defender, technically sound. So yeah, just a brilliant partnership that gave the, the club stability, especially then, in that man marking high press.
0: And, and then you move on to talking about Tony Kroos in a chapter called the, the Kroos role. So def- define what the, the Kroos role was or is.
1: Yeah, so that is very closely tied to, you know, what we've seen of legendary Registas in the past. You know, one player in particular is Andrea Pirlo. Um, so actually just this past weekend, I, I went back and watched some Andrea Pirlo uh, at Juventus versus Real Madrid, and the the similarities between the way he plays or played the position and Cruz plays it now, uh, just uncanny. So we do see with both players, um, they from a defensive standpoint, they were used really as as presence in that rest defense, um, deny entry into the the space right in front of the center backs, and. Um, you know, give a little bit of pressure in the counter press. So really not a heavy defensive role, but it ties in really nicely to what they're looking to do in the attack. When you put a player like Cruz or, or even Pirlo back in his day, outside of the opposition's press, they can then use their range and accuracy to direct the game. And that's what we really saw from Cruz uh, in the attack. He, he was that, that field general Um, determining the tempo, he he was a guy who, you know, when you watch him play, I mean, his body orientation is never wrong. So he's, he's always got his body oriented so that he, he sing, you know, 90% of the field or 75. Um, But he's always got an eye on what the opposition's defensive shape looks like. And so when you get him in that left half space, just outside of the opposition's block, and especially in tandem with Ramos, you put him in a position where he can now um, determine how many players they need on that left-hand side to you know to establish that overload and then unbalance the opponents. So you know we did see Cruz um, determine when and where the opponent or the the team would go from that left half space. You know he could do the the nice little crossbody uh, pass to you know. Venetius Jr. or Eden Hazard in the, the left wing, but he could equally drive the ball uh, all the way across the pitch to a player like Asensio or Danny Carvajal in the left or the right wing. So that I think in dropping him into that, that regista role, there was that twofold purpose. And you know, you look at a player like Cruz; um, it really suited his attacking strengths to put him in a position where he could isolate and then uh, determine when and where the team would attack based on what the opposition was showing.
0: So, and then I guess finally, if we're talking about this um, spine of the team. We, we moved to the, the centre-forward positions and I think that one of the things you highlighted was that there wasn't that immediate replacement of goals uh, when Ronaldo left the club. And that's an issue that I think Real should have had to deal with ever since, really. What was Zidane's approach to to really covering that loss?
1: Yeah, so the club didn't replace Ronaldo properly. There was always that hope that Gareth Bale could take on that star role uh, and really fill a Ronaldo-type role, Um, getting into the box, being the primary scorer, working off of Benzema. But that never happened. So we saw that his his approach to the game really remained the same. Uh, you know, he was more of a wide playmaker while Ronaldo was there, and he was a wide playmaker when Ronaldo left. So that void meant that you you really only had Karim Benzema attacking the box, and and even with Benzema, you have a player who really enjoys dropping into the left half space to help with the build out. So there wasn't even the guarantee that that he would return to the box and give that option. Um, so Zidane really had to find a way to to examine what he had in terms of personnel and carve out a new path for this team to attack. So the solution was the wide attacking pairs. And that actually builds off of Cruz brilliantly. Um, one thing we did see uh on the left-hand side with Benzema dropping in, he and his left forward, whoever it was, whether it was Vinicius or Eden Hazard, they would stay pretty closely connected in the left half space and wing, and there was deeper support from the outside back, you know, typically Mendy. Uh, on the right-hand side of the pitch, whoever was filling the, the right central midfield role would stay pretty closely connected with the right forward. And i mean you it 's difficult to to you know really go into depth with that role in particular because it was so versatile, but in general, if Luca Muldrich was your right center midfield you you would see him in the the right half space really operating as more of a midfield player, which is his strength um, but then you get a guy like Federico Valverde who's not quite as technical as Muldrich and doesn 't quite have the the, the vision, the, the football IQ that muldris has, he actually paired brilliantly with someone who was uh, you know, maybe like Asensio, who's maybe got the qualities of a midfielder with the the taste for goal of a, a forward. So with Valverde, he would often take the wings while p- pushing his right forward into the right half space. So it... it it was very versatile on that, that right hand side. And then, you know, if you get a guy like uh, Danny Carvajal in support, you've really got three quality options on either side of the pitch who can then help you direct your attack. And again, the objective here overload, use that, uh, qual- at least a qualitative superiority, if not quantitative, to then break into the attacking third. And then let the playmakers do their jobs. I mean, you don't, you don't want to necessarily tell Luka Maldrich this is what you're going to do every time you receive the ball. But what Zidane did was he put him in a position where he could you know, really have a high percentage of success and had one or two really good options uh, to decide on. So you know, I think when you look at the attacking pairs, uh, it, you really have to look at the chemistry. Um, the chemistry of the, the forwards and the midfielders in those high and wide positions. And, you know, again, this is where Kroos and Ramos, with their distributions, they, they really played a major role in the way this team attacked.
0: If we return then to look at the, the I guess, the results that Zidane was getting, when, when he came back in in 2018-19, they, they ended up finishing in third, in, in a table, so they managed to get their Champions League qualification. I guess you could say he, he started to, to steady the ship, but they, they had a, a pretty strong start to the following season. Is that right?
1: Yeah, a brilliant start to the, the following season. Um, the defensive tactics were definitely improved. We could see the, you know, the, the man-marking high press and the, the improved rest defense right from the start. Um, We also, you know, we did see some improvement in the attack, you know, definitely not uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Zidane levels, but given the talent he had at his disposal, I think he was getting the most out of his team. But yeah, when you look at the evolution of this team, um, it it really was the core group returning that played the greatest role uh, in 2019-20. You just see a different mindset with the team. Uh, you know, the previous season, you know, there was almost a sense that if they went down a goal, they weren't sure if they were going to get it back. Um, you, know, or, you know, if uh, if they were beaten on the counterattack, not necessarily a guarantee that, that they were going to fix that. problem. it was just a matter of time until the next one happened. So the mentality was, was just so far off. Um, so I think, you know, when you look at a coach like Zidane, it, the defensive tactics were massive. But equally important, you have the psychological stability that he brings to the club. Uh, you know, we—if you follow Real Madrid closely—you'll often hear him talk about uh, finals. You know, this is a final. This game is important. If—if if we don't win this, uh, you know, it's—it's it's the equivalent of losing a final. And he brought back that—that that sense of urgency, uh, that hunger, that mentality back to the club. And so, you know, one of, one of my biggest tells, uh, regarding the mentality of a team is how do they respond defensively? You know, is there that quick counter press? Um, are they willing to sacrifice themselves a little bit more? Um, you know, even late in the game when fatigue is high, you know, bordering on exhaustion, are they willing to do their job to get back and support their teammates in order to secure the result, to kill off a play. And with Zidane, um, you know, we, we did see that that became the norm again. So granted, you know, much better defensive tactics. Um, you know, he did shore them up to the position where they could recover. But that's the thing, they could. Now they had to actually do the job. They had to actually get there. Carvajal had to track back. Mendy had to track back. Or even Marcelo. You know, we saw Marcelo play or get the starting spot in uh, El Clasico in March. Marcelo, who was just uh, awful defensively in the previous seasons. He was willing to put in those extra sprints under Zidane. He was willing to track back and sacrifice for his teammates. And that's just not something we saw the previous year. And I think that's, that's potentially the benefit
0: of having that big-name coach is that if Zinedine Zidane tells you to do something, you're, you're generally going to do it. But but nevertheless, they despite their strong start, they they had a mid-season slump, which you talk about as well in your book. And then there was a bit of a, a post-COVID surge, which of course ended with them winning the uh, Liga title. So can you tell us a, a little bit about that as well?
1: Yeah, so one of our favorite stats in the... Uh... The analysis community is XG, expected goals. When you look at that mid-season 12-game slump, Benzema had an XG of 4.5. Next on the team was Sergio Ramos with 2.7. After those two, uh, the next highest tally is 1.67 from Tony Cruz. So the top three... In the team in XG over that 12-game period with the center forward, center back, and the Regista. It really just gives you a sense of, you know, first Benzema's hot start had slowed down, but he was also not supported either in the goal contributions from the forward or, or really um, if you watch the team build up, there almost seemed like there was a necessity that Benzema had to drop into midfield. And at times, I think, because of the lack of service, there was a little bit of desperation on his part. Um, you know at times he was forcing it a bit, but on the whole, you know they, they were very stagnant in the attack. You know, we could see that the success they had in drawing opponents out and forcing them to actually engage in the, the game uh, and to take a little bit of attacking initiative that that really disappeared during that 12 match stretch, and they, they did become dependent on. The uh the set piece goal from from Ramos or Varane or you know Benzema getting one of his his few goals during that stretch so it really wasn't a whole lot else but the thing that carried them through that mid season slump was always their defense um you know even though the the attacking numbers dropped dramatically the defensive numbers actually picked up and we saw that um you know You know, actually, when you look at it, every team is going to have their slumps. It's it's not just a a constant line of performance. Every team will have their their surges and their dips. But when you do dip, how well do you contain it? Um, You know, and and what do you look for from the, the team, the coach, from the tactics to maybe offset struggles in a particular area? And that's where when the team did struggle to produce goals as they did uh, just before the COVID suspension of play, we saw them lean on that, that steady defense. So even though, you know, Benzema wasn't getting his goals, there was no support from the forwards. Um, Bale was awful during that time. Hazard was hurt for most of it. They still found a way to grind out results. And that, again, that goes back to that mindset that Zidane had established at the club. Even when things aren't working, you have to find a way. You can't give up. You can't put your head down and feel bad for yourself like you know, they had the previous season. Can you be an intelligent player? Can you be a, a person of character? Not even a player of character. Just a person of character and battle through the adversity. And you know, one of the things I loved during that, that rough patch Man, if they cleared a ball off the line, uh, if Courtois stopped a breakaway, um, if someone tracked back and made a, a brilliant defensive uh, play, man, these guys celebrated like they had just scored a goal. So I, I love seeing that in a team. You know, as someone who who was more defensive as a, a player, I love to see that in a team. You know, especially for the defenders. You know, it, it's such a high high pressure position, anyways. So find your joy. You know, I think Zidane helped them see that. You know, There could be joy in that brilliant defensive play. You know, it, there didn't have to be just the, the reliance on the goal to celebrate. Um, so we did see, we saw a little more pride and more character in the team during that rough patch. And that's definitely a credit to Zidane.
0: That's what I, I quite like about the book is that for all the tactics and data that you bring up, I think yeah, one of the overarching themes is that character that Zidane managed to instill. so And that, that's something that you, you, you can't really, I guess, measure with, with data or whatever. So that was interesting as well, where you see you were able to demonstrate some clearly measurable areas where they improved, but there was also, as you say, a, there seemed to be a change in culture uh, under Zidane. So really, the last couple of questions, I think uh, the obvious one to bring up is that this season isn't going as well. Madrid, you know, seven points off the top of the table, two, point, uh, two games in hand for top of the table Atletico. So it looks very unlikely that you're going to repeat another domestic success this year. What, what's happening right now with Real Madrid? And is, is, you know, is there an issue with Zidane at the moment? Or do you see this
1: as a bit of a blip? I do see it as a little bit of a blip, um, primarily tied to the injuries at the club. Uh, this, this last match in particular, um, so at the time of recording, they, Real Madrid had just recorded a two to one win against Huesca in La Liga. When you look at their bench, there were four open spots and of the, let's see, six players they had on the bench. Two of them were goalkeepers. The players who entered the game were Marcelo, Marvin Park, and Mariano Diaz. So there was really only one other field player available, and it was a center back by the name of Victor Trust. So injuries have played a massive role in the team's the team's issues this year. Uh, when Sergio Ramos is not on the pitch, they are not nearly as defensively stable. Uh, Talvin he missed this uh, this previous game because he was red carded within ten minutes uh, the game beforehand. So. And yeah Hazard has hardly played as well, and you know we 've seen lingering inju- injuries from Danny Carvajal, so injuries have played a, a massive role in the team 's fortunes this season. Um, you know there have actually also been several games where the performances themselves have been excellent they just haven 't found a way to to get that breakthrough you know to find the the one goal that gets them the result so yeah, I mean it, it's definitely not going quite as planned. Uh definitely a nervous point as uh, I was releasing the book <laughs> back in December. But you know, the mentality is still there. Um these guys are willing to fight. It, it's just they have had a number of bad breaks. Uh and you know when the the performances have suffered um especially I think you know during the the last actually the middle stages of the the Champions League we did see a, a rough patch there. Um, it just seemed like there were too many moving parts in the starting eleven, so there, the team was never really able to develop the the cohesion that they had um, during that post COVID run the previous year. So, you know, it, it was an adjustment period. Um, they had to figure out each other out again. The man marking high press wasn't quite used as often during that phase, and and it showed. Um, they're, you know, they were still willing to engage in a high press. Um, but as they moved from the high press to a middle block, they were typically set up in a four-one-four-one uh, one defensive structure and they were just picked apart. So, but I think they, they are starting to see that Cruz does need to be a little bit deeper. That, um, that the man marking high press w- worked for a reason last year. It, I mean, it does come down to superiority. You have elite players use those uh athletic abilities that they have in the air use the the brilliant reading of play from casemiro to intercept and then um use his sound defensive technique to recover the ball so yeah i mean you know i want to say the the ship's back on track but you know is it too late at this point maybe
0: So I guess a nice way to finish, Scott, I'm going to ask you for a sound bite in I guess maybe 30 seconds or less. How would you describe
1: a Zinedine Zidane team? A Zinedine Zidane team is going to be very defensively sound and he's going to use that defensive structure to create more freedom higher up the pitch for his playmakers. So he he was a, a brilliant player himself he enjoyed the freedom uh, in, tac- in the team's tactics. He liked being the free man. So he does understand that he needs to give those creative freedoms to his players higher up the pitch. So his work is at the very foundation. With the sound foundation, he can then give players the opportunities to show their qualities, which is why they're at Real Madrid. Brilliant.
0: Well, listen, Scott... Uh, I've really enjoyed the book myself, and uh, if you want to get it, you can get it from uh, Amazon, and I think it's scottmartinmedia.com. That's right. Uh, I really recommend picking it up. And I think of all the interviews that I've done on this platform, I think you're the first person from TOEFL Analysis, I'm pretty sure. So there you go. So first, first uh, co-worker. Um, congratulations. Thank I, you. I know that you've got another book coming out pretty soon as well and a bit more of a different topic right
1: yeah so you know i am a youth coach here in the the united states and you know speaking with uh chris mumford one of our tfa colleagues who's also a professor at unc chapel hill uh we determined it was it was time for a a soccer parent handbook (laughs) you know just you know i guess help build the you know, we're going to call it soccer culture here in the States. Um, give some parents some insights into what we as coaches and what the players are trying to accomplish on the pitch. Uh, but then also just just give some, some guidance on the club process here. We do have pay for play here. Um, there are big things like club selection. And, um, you know, I, I guess just how we interact with each other either from the parents interacting with coaches or, or even the players and referees or the club itself. So we wanted to, to really take a deep dive there. Um, it, again, it's a nice balance of a soccer education for the parents. Um, you know, we cover some basics, but then also we, we want to make sure that we give some insights to maybe someone who has been involved in the game even at a reasonably high level. So, you know, we will talk about things like rest defense that is in the book. So, you know, there's something for any parent who wants to read the book. Um, There's definitely the emphasis on parents in the United States with the club specific information. But, you know, I think for, for any parent, um, you know, whether it's the United States or even across the pond in Europe, there's definitely some information you can glean on, on, uh, you know, how coaches and clubs view youth development so yeah should be out in about a month we're excited for it
0: okay that's great i mean yeah i'm looking forward to reading that as well i think that's a great idea um scott thanks for your time today thanks for coming on and uh yeah honestly yeah good luck with this and and if you have listened to this and you think yeah that sounds interesting please do go and pick it up and support it uh i really enjoyed it myself so good luck scott and uh Maybe we'll be back on soon talking about parents and uh, youth soccer.
1: There we go. Thank you very much, David. Appreciate Uh it.